Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. I am Charlotte Johann. And I'm Olivier Higgins. Today we are talking to Dr. Megan Donaldson. Megan Donaldson is a research fellow at King's College Cambridge and an affiliated lecturer at Cambridge's law faculty. She specializes in the theory and the history of international law in the modern period, including international public law and global government and the development of the international legal order. She is currently preparing a monograph about regimes of publicity and secrecy in international law since the 19th century. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. So it's become customary on this podcast to begin with the question of how and why you came to study intellectual history. So let me preface this with the caveat that I'm actually not sure that what I work on can be described as intellectual history in any really simple way. There's a strong intellectual history dimension to it in the sense that I'm interested in recovering ways of um, writing and thinking about politics, about the legal order. But I'm interested also in the workings of institutions and bureaucracies and in the role of material forms and legal instruments. Now, of course, none of this is excluded from intellectual history. It's just that it might not be central to some conceptions to it. It intersects quite strongly also with diplomatic history and uh, imperial history. There's a second caveat also, and that is that this kind of intellectual biography is slightly more involved than uh, some of the other biographies of people that you interview precisely because I come to this field in, in, I suppose, rather an unusual way. So when I started studying, I was studying history and law together as undergraduate degrees in Melbourne and in history. I had a strong interest in the French Revolution. I did an honours thesis on the aftermath of revolutionary violence in the west of France in the Vendée region. And at that same time, I was studying law and I had a particular interest in public law and international law. And I saw then that there were very powerful ways in which these two fields might speak to each other. And actually, work on that history honours thesis did give me something which proved to be the spark of of later work, though I didn't see it at the time. I went on to practice. I worked in a firm. I worked for a judge for a time. And then I came back to academia again in, in law. I did a master's in legal theory at New York University. And it's there that I became preoccupied with something that was quite central to my work for a few years. And that was a project of trying to make sense of the phenomenon of global governance, for for want of a better word. So I was part of a project which was seeing and naming all of this governance as part of the legal order. And that had a legitimizing effect. And it became very quickly um, an endeavor to try and specify requirements for how this global governance should work, normative requirements. And I was working on transparency in particular with these really intricate, institutionally tailored prescriptions. And I just began to feel that it was quite ungrounded. Um, Transparency for whom, to what end, where is the political constituency of all this? And I had also in the back of my mind this honest thesis um, on revolutionary violence, the importance of transparency 
of laying bare responsibility, both in revolutionary discourse and in the aftermath of that violence. And so it was very evident to me that this whole vocabulary, the whole rhetoric of transparency and the work it did as a political ideal was historically contingent. And mm. that's what moved me back to the historical. Um, so I took up this question for the doctorate, of the manifestations of an idea that foreign affairs should be known to the public and how this fitted with the legalization of the international order. In part, as a result of this doctorate, I then came uh, very fortuitously to a junior research fellowship in history of international law, uh, which was a, a joint project of a number of different areas here. And I was very much um, shaped by the work of Annabelle Brett, uh, who drew me particularly into teaching in her paper six, States Between States, History of International Political Thought. And that brings me, I guess, to where I am now, which is working in this uh, much denser, more layered frame of reference, which I think is the natural environment of history of political thought and teaching also international law. So I'm preoccupied all the time by one thing, law, the international legal order, why it takes the forms that it does. I'm in conversation with different groups of people moving between, I guess, um, speaking primarily to historians and speaking to lawyers. And it's that question of moving from one to the other, which is at the heart of what's most complicated, I think, about what I do now. So as you mentioned, you received a legal education before coming to Cambridge. And we are curious about your experience of the encounter of these two disciplines. So what, from your point of view, is the role of history in the study of law today? And what is the place of law in intellectual history and the history of political thought? So let's start with history in the study of law. Your reference to kind of experiencing this encounter captures something which is important. So I'm working intellectually on the intersection of these disciplines. And in particular, I'm editing a book with Annabelle Brett and Marty Koskaniemi about uh, the interaction between history, politics and law. But I do also feel quite personally implicated in these discussions just because I, I simply can't get away from the question of how to handle that intersection. I'm not sure that I'm able to say anything comprehensive about the role of history in the study of law full stop, because I think one of the oddities of the history of international law is how divorced that field has been in a way from legal history. Um, more capaciously. So I'm going to talk mostly about history of international law rather than history generally. But on the other term, history, I'm just going to take you on the, on the broad terms of that question. There is a debate at the moment about the extent to which history of international law, to, to the extent that that in itself is a meaningful category, should be pursued in ways that are intelligible to the kinds of contextualist um, commitments typically associated with, with what's called the Cambridge school, although that, again, is a complicated term and category. In some ways, I find that debate quite painful and constraining, although it throws up what I think are very important issues. So I don't want to speak only within the corners of that debate, although bits of it might come up. If I'm thinking about the role of history in the study of international law, that is a wonderfully ambiguous question, right? Because it captures both the activity of studying law historically or otherwise as a phenomenon and the study of law as a kind of professional practice and in taking an internal perspective. 
there's a hugely significant role for history in studying law as a phenomenon. So a wide range of historical approaches breaks down what I think's been rather artificially designated as the history of international law. It puts law back into relation with political forms, notably empire, bureaucratic techniques, forms of knowledge. And some of this work puts very helpfully into question actually what law is, uh, helps us get beyond the standard form of treaties and so on to much more diffuse intercultural patterns of interaction, jurisdictional tensions. And here I think of the work of Lauren Benton. It's helpful also in revisiting the Eurocentrism of the traditional narrative of international law. I do think that history also has a profoundly important role in the study of law from within as a professional practice. And this is something I think about increasingly in the context of teaching. So most obviously, I think it's not well understood that practicing international law involves you in a series of routine tasks which look a lot like what a historian would do although those tasks are responsive to parameters that a historian would not necessarily recognise as relevant. So making arguments about precedential value of past decisions, looking into a confined portion of the negotiations of a treaty to discover the intentions of parties, trying to figure out whether a very complex landscape of practice yields the kinds of practice and the kinds of Uh, convictions of obligation which give rise to customary norms. All of this has some relation to the sort of work that a historian does, although of course is constrained by protocols which a historian does not accept. And a sense of history, I think, sharpens these modes of loyally inquiry, but it helps lawyers see, as they're working as lawyers, how the formal parameters of their inquiry shape law as a system. So what is included, what is jurisgenerative and what is excluded or marginalised? And that's really important because lawyers have, particularly international lawyers perhaps, an irreducibly political dimension to their work. So being conscious of what the method of law produces um, is very important. And history more generally gives the kind of freedom which I myself had when I stepped back from looking at the contemporary back into the historical uh, sort of openness or critical distance from the normative assumptions we typically make, in my case, about secrecy and openness. And I think that those are important for the study of law by lawyers, by people who are going to go on to be lawyers or international civil servants, bureaucrats, advisors. I'm very conscious, though, that in what I've just said, I've, I've worked with a kind of bifurcation, studying law from the outside, studying law from the inside, as it were. But that's complicated. And this is one of the issues that arises in this debate between what we might call critical international lawyers on one hand and capital H historians on the other. Those are very crude positions, but just to give a sense of of where the arguments are coming from. One of the points that arises in that debate, and I think it's one of the most provocative and difficult points, is one made by Anne Orford. And her position is that those of us who are writing about international law, and particularly its history, might also want to be writing within international law. So they might not be making entirely orthodox moves precedentially from the perspective of international legal doctrine, but they might be moves that are orthodox enough to be legible in international legal discourse. 
to work international law against itself, to open up new possibilities in the law itself. Now, doing this might look different to the sort of move that a historian would make, particularly somebody with a strong contextualist commitment. But I think that what she's arguing for is the preservation of an intellectual space, uh, a certain position of ambiguity or ambivalence regarding the extent to which one is within or without the law. And that seems to me an important and valuable point. One of the major developments in historical scholarship in recent decades seems to be the challenge of state-centered ways of doing history and the turn to studying different forms of agency, including empire, which you mentioned. Can you tell us about the ways in which international law is implicated in this ongoing shift? I think both history and international law in their modern iterations, as essentially 19th century disciplines, have a sort of affinity. They're both conceptually enmeshed in a self-defined state system, to some extent nation-state, participated in its preservation and articulation. And both had for a long time a sort of studied distance from empire, which is perhaps one reason why attention to empire has been so transformative for both of those fields. I think what's productive about uh, teaching in, in a paper like States Between States is that it localizes and transcends this sense of the state as the telos and as the inevitable um, central agent in these systems. There's a strong interest now in history of international law, broadly understood, in thinking about how it is that the state became so central uh, to history, to international law. Intellectual history has been very important in opening this up, but I'm conscious also in my own work of the need to confront the extent to which we're working with raw material or a primary source base, which is, in a sense, extruded by the state. So in the interwar period, which is a period which is really central for me, um, one sees, for example, the rise of what Keith Hamilton has called historical diplomacy. So these compendious collections of historical documents drawn from foreign ministry archives largely, which work also as legal arguments about responsibility for the way the world is, for war, for peace, and so on. And I think it's important when we're doing history of international law, however we understand that, to read against the archival grain, to take Anne Stoller's term, to look at what's not in the archives or what in the archives reflects absence or reflects... Uh, construction of the state. So in my own work, that involves looking back for archival traces of the anxiety that governments have about wresting papers out of the hands of individuals. So the constitution of the state archive is an ongoing project, even in the interwar period. And I'm very interested in the way in which archives construct the state as a legal actor. So we've seen um, contemporary debates about the significance of the loss or destruction of colonial era archives, for example. And I've looked at the ways in which Britain revisited the Suez crisis in the 1980s when the 30-year lapse of time was up and they had to decide what could be released from the archives. So you see a sort of successive uh, construction of the state as a legal actor. And in fact, archives are still pretty central to the extent to which international legal mechanisms, particularly adjudication, can work. So, so much for the state. And I think that the interest is in looking at the the way in which the state becomes so central. But histories of international law are also obviously interested in other agents, so empire, but also international organisations in civil society networks, regional self-articulations, pan-Africanism, pan-Arabism, 
black nationalism, and in the interactions or tensions between international law, European international law, and other legal systems. So moving on to a question about the periodization of international law. Your recent article on the publicity and secrecy in international treaty making focuses on the interwar period. And we wanted to ask about the significance of that moment and its genealogies. So is the founding of the League of Nations an event in which long-standing conceptions of an international legal order are put into practice? Or is it much rather a break with the past, brought about by the war and the twilight of European empires? Perhaps predictably, I would say a bit of both. Um, I would also make a preliminary distinction, I think, between the founding of the League of Nations and the interwar period as a whole, which was one of quite rapid change and experimentation. I think it's often forgotten that at its founding, the League was a half-formed thing, really, the League Covenant did not reflect a comprehensive conception of the international legal order, nor even, I don't think, a stable sense of what the League itself would be as a legal person or as a political agent. But the creation of the League as a new institutional site in which debates about these sorts of things would unfold was transformative. So it changed the terrain of political interaction, it broadened the circle of those who were prima facie involved, it introduced and channeled new vocabularies in which these things would be discussed. Uh, but the product of that was not evident and it was not fully formed in 1919. There were obviously in the League and in the early parts of the interwar important continuities with what had preceded uh, 1919. So obviously a generalization of a kind of alliance politics, some commitment to concerted action against a recalcitrant or law-breaking state, although not yet a fully worked out uh, system of collective defense. There are sharp breaks also in the sense of a commitment to disarmament that had already been developing around the time of the Hague Conventions late 19th century, but it was radicalized and generalized, popularized also by the experience of industrial warfare. So there was a very strong commitment to disarmament. There was I think a widespread expectation that there would be radical change, but the shape of that wasn't evident in 1919. And in fact, it's something uh, which continues to be debated throughout the interwar period is still being discussed on the, on the eve of World War II. In some ways, the League is a continuation of the evolution of international law, um, a commitment to international arbitration or international adjudication, but Stephen Wertheim actually has made a point that the institutionalization of the League was also in some ways a turn away from law, a commitment to some more organic or more natural, more political uh, mode of international interaction than was perceived to have been made possible by some of the arbitration treaties of the 19th century. And finally, your reference to Twilight of Empire is interesting because it's exactly there, another site of both of continuity but fairly radical transformation as well. And Susan Peterson's work on the plasticity of the League regime on mandates brings this out, I think. Um, the somewhat unpredictable and contingent ways in which the League enabled new kinds of discussion of empire, the development of new models of informal empire in one view. 
And I think this is the reason the interwar period is really interesting. Right? It's, it's very experimental. The conceptual difficulties are very close to the surface because many of the concepts or institutions that people are working with are novel. So the novelty is felt in a way that we've somehow lost today when these things are more established parts of our conceptual landscape. And I think that the compromises, the intellectual constructions of the interwar are actually still central to the international legal order today. That's why it's such a fruitful site for me to move between the past and the present for law. Your work on global administrative law and deliberative democracy from 2016 discusses concentrations of power at different levels, and it raises also the potential for deliberative democracy beyond the state. Could you say more about this potential and uh, its place in our current global politics? I can try. This, again, is work that I co-authored with Benedict Kingsbury, but also Rodrigo Vallejo, and it took life in a very uncomfortable zone, the contours of which are probably already obvious in some of the things that I've mentioned. So this project of global administrative law in which we were engaged was an effort to bring into doctrinal focus a very extensive, very politically salient, quite legalised mode of governance, much of which was ignored entirely by the orthodox uh, categories of international law. But seeing something, naming something as relevant in some way to the legal order is a political intervention. And it has an effect often of legitimizing or endorsing or consolidating what's there. This is a point made uh, powerfully by Carol Harlow in a comment on global administrative law. And that legitimization, of course, attracts very powerful critiques. Uh, of the role being played by transnational elites in international organisations and then in academia, looking at the work of organisations. And I think that the challenge was to try and articulate what could be a plausible normative end, given that we were clearly doing things, intellectual things, which had normative implications. And initially, the project of global administrative law in which um, Benedict Kingsbury and others were engaged had had bracketed democracy, had not felt that democracy was a plausible ideal for this system. Now, I leave aside here the fact that democracy itself is obviously a highly complex concept or ideal. And in fact, most international law, even of the orthodox status kind, is not democratic in any obvious way at all. But this piece was born from a kind of second reflection that actually it wasn't clear that it made sense self-consciously to push away democracy or to push away the kinds of concerns for self-government and non-domination, which could be part of a democratic aspiration. So we were trying to open the brackets in a sense and think in a preliminary way about what it might look like to take that kind of an aspiration seriously. And of course, there isn't anything in in the administration that we were looking at that secures anything that would be recognisable as a sort of full-blown Habermasian deliberative um, model. But in a minimal way, it might be that in these new sites of governance, there are sort of pockets or chinks or spaces in which people, particularly people who are in developing states without very established modes of political representation within those states, could be heard could assert themselves politically in ways which were not afforded either by the domestic system or by orthodox international law. And as I said, intellectually, to the extent that we seem to be doing something with normative implications, it appeared important to kind of 
think in a more extended way about what the normative ideal could be. And that piece expresses some cautious optimism about the way in which articulating democracy as a possible part of the ideal landscape could force us to think about the structures of governance, right? Move up from the procedure to the structures themselves, the way in which institutions interact with each other, and possibly expand the scope for challenge and contestation from the procedure to substantive norms, that there might be some sort of possibility of iterative challenge. As for the potential for this in our current politics, I think that one of the really difficult things about writing on something like global governance is that one seems to be claiming expertise about how to govern the globe, and I I don't feel in any way qualified to express a view on that. I think I just have the same intuitions that a lot of other people have that our political discourse, our political institutions are not presently able not even in the Atlantic democracies and particularly not globally to address our collective fate. And there's a sense of alienation from a very diffuse or technocratic mode of governance that's part of the story, but perhaps as much a symptom as a cause. So at its worst, the kind of thing that I think that we were tracking in this piece merely exacerbates the problem, right? It moves contestation to even more specialized and distant arenas it feels less intuitively recognisable as political. At its best, it might offer possibilities for some more genuine political exchange than are available in domestic politics. So moving on to the subject of your current book project, which traces conceptions of secrecy and publicity in the 19th and 20th centuries. Why do questions concerning secrecy and publicity play a role in legal and political debates? Uh, in that period, and how did shifts between them affect legal regime? This book project grows out of the doctorate, which is interested in secrecy and publicity of and about foreign relations, although what counts as foreign relations is very much in question in that project. And one thing that's interesting is that concern about secrecy and publicity of foreign relations actually doesn't necessarily track broader anxieties about publicity or secrecy in the state as a whole. I should say something actually about this term publicity because it goes to the point that I've made before about the historical contingency of concern about transparency. So this word publicity is is the dominant term for a cluster of things which I think we now would group under the term transparency. And it's only in the 30s and 40s that the sort of advertising connotations of publicity begin to weigh on that term. Um, And you can see in the late interwar period debate about whether that's still a viable term for speaking generally about the openness to a public. And actually, I think this history in which publicity falls away as a term, but transparency doesn't really emerge until the late 80s, early 90s for complex reasons, tells you something about the discontinuity of conceptual understandings. So secrecy and publicity in in the ways in which I look at them I think play a role in political debates, albeit in very different ways at different moments, because they are oblique ways of getting at power, the nature of the state, the inside and the outside, both how the state exists in a world of other states and who are the agents of the state. So to take two very different examples, one thing which interested me in the early 20th century in French discussions about secrecy of foreign relations and of treaties is this very extravagant um, presence of 
metaphors to do with the Ancien Régime, the secret du roi, the sense that there was something archaic and absolutist going on in the French state. And that obviously reflects the peculiar political history of France, but it also reflects the power of secrecy as a discourse to get straight to the foundations of political authority and a question of who's wielding political authority. So in public, you had accusations, generally speaking, from the left, but also from some liberals about the absolutist nature of the foreign policy being pursued. And within the foreign ministry and the uh, other government departments, you had a sense of anxiety about the archaic nature of the state flowing from the fact that, in reality, they had no way of controlling secrecy. Their internal modes of keeping secrets, of requesting that state agents didn't disclose things, were very old, in fact, and, and they had a sense also of the need to modernise. So a very striking sense of temporal shifts in a debate about political authority, which is centred on this notion of secrecy. Another example, I suppose, about the way in which secrecy and publicity go to the structure of the state is the structure of empire. So the layers of knowledge at different levels of imperial governance radiating from the centre out. So I think secrecy and publicity play a role or play the role that they do because they go to power in its exercise, but they are not neutral as ways of framing political contestation. Of course, a call for more publicity is part of an enlightenment discourse. It's more recently part of a liberal vision. But a call for more publicity is a procedural demand. It's a bureaucratic demand. And it's always at one remove from the really acute political question of who is the public? Who is going to exercise power when things are disclosed? In work on the rhetoric of publicity um, in the early interwar period, Stephen Wertheim has talked about the way in which calls for publicity authorise a notion of abstract global publics, which helps avoid the difficult question of who it is who's actually going to be the new political actor when things are more open. And I think that the intersection of secrecy and publicity with legal regimes is particularly important. I've touched on this before, that this question of making things public is in some ways a necessary predicate of them being taken into account in a legal adjudication. But at a higher level of abstraction, I think we need to be very wary of seeing law and publicity as going hand in hand. So law has a secrecy of its own. Its institutions, its procedural norms sanction quite significant secrecy, and the legal vocabularies themselves make possible a sort of secrecy. And as always, our last question concerns your current and future projects. What are you planning to work on once the book is out? Two smaller projects and one big project. Great. So the smaller projects, I'm still intrigued by treaties. I've worked a great deal on the modern conception of the treaty, the idea that this whole complex culture of political promising can be conceived as a unitary legal category. And I've looked at the possibilities of secrecy and political consensus created by the gaps between legal categorization and more colloquial vocabularies and diplomatic crafts of drafting. I'm interested now in reconstructing the emergence of this unitary category of treaty. So you have a point at which Wolf and Vartel are still using terms inherited from Roman law into the 19th century when there's a kind of gradual 
um, shift away from some of these older terms into what's uneasily seen as a kind of unitary category, although there are still misgivings in many authors. A second project is to return to something which really has interested me for many years, but which won't find a place in the monograph, and that's the intellectual and rhetorical negotiation of the boundaries of diplomacy. So this goes in a different direction from the league-centric research. It goes back to a very old um, aspect of the law of nations, so the law concerning ambassadors and how they behave and how they're treated. Much more decentralised, although you do see European-wide norms. And I want to look again at the diplomatic manuals of the early 20th century. These are historical compilations, but they're also crystallisations of customary law on diplomatic relations. And I want to look at the way they take up um, in, in a rather playful way, actually, this archaic sense of the diplomat as a, a keeper of secrets and a selective discloser of secrets. Um, very complex normative valence around secrecy in this period and build that into a rehabilitated diplomatic secrecy. And that, I think, offers a new chapter in the history of the relation between diplomacy and intelligence gathering in the 20th century. Those are the small projects. The big project is to do with peace, right? Um, peace and peacemaking and the extent to which that's a legal phenomenon. And uh, that goes back to the 18th century and... I want to work a bit in the space between a history of peacemaking, primarily peace treaties, which focuses on European powers between themselves, and work by people like Benton and Belmassou and others, which has looked at the intricacy of peacemaking in empire. Um, so I'm intrigued by the extent to which peace can really be understood in that period as a legal category, and conversely, what different understandings of peace tell us about the nature of law and the interaction of laws in that period. Great. Well, we look forward to all of that. And uh, thanks very much for speaking with us today. It's been fascinating. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. We will tweet links to publications mentioned today. So if you don't yet follow us on Twitter, please do at the IH podcast. If you're listening on iTunes, please support us by rating or reviewing the podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. Thanks. Thanks.